I'm Michael Ashcroft, the founder of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and this is a special edition of the Ashcroft in America podcast. Mitt Romney is a successful businessman, a former governor of Massachusetts, and in 2012 was the Republican nominee for President of the United States. He is one of the very few people who knows what it's like to run for the highest office in the land. I sat down with him at his home in San Diego to ask him about the experience, how he sees the international political order and the future of the Republican Party. How have you been spending your time over the last four years, and what have you been up to? Well, I've actually been doing what most politicians say they would like to do, and that is I've been living a balanced life with uh, really four streams of activity. One, I spend a lot of time with my family. I have 24 grandkids. Two, I'm still involved in business and uh, the private equity world, and also real estate investing is taking a good portion of my time. Um, three, I'm involved in politics. And, uh, and I get out and, uh, and campaign for people I believe in. Uh, and then four, uh, there are several charities that I'm very closely associated with that uh, I spend time with. So I get to do all four of these days, and it's pretty, uh, uh, pretty fulfilling. And you're one of the very few people in history who can, in fact, answer this question. What is it like to run for president of the United States? Um, you know, I think most people would assume it is a grueling, awful experience. I would tell you that it is exhausting, <clears throat> but it is invigorating at the same time. Uh, I used to have a, a rally and speech and rally and speech time and time again during the day, flying from city to city, the end of the day exhausted, but I couldn't sleep because I was so energized from the audiences that I was with and from their energy that uh, that you basically have a hard time just settling down. I have to read some scriptures or something to put myself to sleep. And uh, I, I came away with a much greater understanding of the nature of our country, uh, what we're going through right now, and uh, and I think ideas about how to chart a course forward. So I, you know, I, I say to friends, if you get the chance to run for president of the United States, do it. It's a great <laughs> educational and uh, and uplifting experience. And what would you say are the main things that you learned from the experience about both the country and also about yourself? Well, uh, the country is a long list of things. About myself, I'll, I'll mention one in particular, which is, um, it's true for me, I think it's probably true for most people. We can do more than we think we can. Uh, had you told me the, the level of work and involvement, the number of speeches and the travel that I was going to be uh, involved with, uh, I might tell you that that's not something I can keep up with. But in fact, you can you can dig very deep uh, when things matter greatly. And I, I found I was able to, to go a lot further in terms of energy and passion than I might have expected otherwise. Uh, there's more reserve in us than we sometimes know. Um, in terms of the country, I think um, we're conflicted as a people right now. Uh, to a certain degree, uh, we feel uh, patriotism, uh, pride in our country, uh, hope for the future. Um, we're family-oriented, God-fearing, uh, hard-working people. On the other hand, there's a, a growing stream of anger and resentment, defeatism, victimhood, 
Uh, and, and a lot of people are sort of torn in both ways. We have our better angels and our darker angels, if you will. And, and politicians and leaders of all kinds can draw on the one or the other. And, uh, and we're right now somewhat conflicted as we try and decide what is the course for America. And uh, I think that's in part why you see the kind of uh, variability and support for various people uh, that we're seeing in the, in the process right now. From the outsider's point of view, running for president looks extremely grueling, perhaps even punishing, as you've just said. But was it a difficult decision to put yourself forward? And what factors go through your mind when you're trying to decide? Well, uh, Lord Ashcroft, you'll appreciate this. There are probably in America a lot of people who would be fine presidents. Um, uh, maybe, well, actually very many of them never run for president and never get the chance to. But I found myself in a, by virtue of a series of steps in my life, in a position where I could run for president. And most people who are qualified don't have that opportunity, don't have that window open to them. The window was opened to me in 2008, in part because of my experience organizing in Olympics. And then after that, becoming governor of my state, uh, I, I had the potential to run for president. And I looked at the field. And I looked at what I thought needed to be done to get America on track. And I believed that I was in the best position to help America. And uh, at that point, the decision is pretty easy. I mean, I, I had seen my dad. My dad ran for president back in 1968. I saw him lose. Uh, he used to joke that his campaign was like a miniskirt, short and revealing. Uh, my, my campaign was longer, but also revealing. Uh, but, but once I saw where we were and, the noted, and noted that the window was open for me to step through, um, uh, my family and I talked it through, uh, but it was unanimous. Go for it. And, and both of us have backgrounds in business. But how is setting up a presidential campaign when you're effectively the product as well as the CEO different from setting up a business? And are there any similarities? Uh, there are surely similarities. I mean, in, in, uh, in a startup business or in a, uh, a, a enterprise that you take over as an investor or as a new executive, um, you begin by assessing where you are and trying to understand the kind of team you'd need to have to be successful. And so I went around the country and spoke with people who'd been involved in presidential campaigns and said, look, what's the most important person to have? What kind of skill do you need? Uh, in social media, in advertising, in strategy, and so forth. And, uh, and, and then I outlined what I'd like to have as a team, and then I began to recruit people. And you do that with a business as well. And I recruited people who I liked and people who had a good track record uh, and people who I believe would get along with one another. And once that team was put together, uh, they began building the rest of the team. Now, the big difference in a campaign versus... Uh, a business, is that at that stage, because I was the product, if you will, that they would be selling, I sort of stepped out of the day-to-day -day management and became the person out on the trail. I was giving speeches and shaking hands and going to parades, and they were the ones managing where I would be, which groups I'd speak to. Uh, they'd put together policy papers for me. And of course, I'd come in once every two or three weeks and help make strategic decisions with them. But, uh, but I was more removed from the management of the campaign than, than I would have been from the management of an enterprise. When you first entered the Republican primary race, how confident were you that you'd come out on top? 
Well, I first ran in 2008, and my opponent was John McCain, and he was well ahead in the polls as I got started. I was convinced he could not beat uh, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton if uh, they were the uh, Democrat nominee, and therefore I thought I ought to get in and, and, uh, and take it from him. But uh, at that stage, I realized it was an uphill climb. And becoming the nominee and taking that away from John McCain was not, I wouldn't think the odds maker would say it's a, a likely thing to happen, uh, but I had a good shot at it, uh, unsuccessful in becoming the nominee. In 2012, uh, I looked at a large field. Uh, I looked at the number of people that I'd been able to gather in 2008 to be part of my team uh, across the country. And I concluded that I had the best shot of becoming the nominee. Uh, not a sure thing by any means, but at least 50-50. But I did recognize that removing an incumbent president with President Obama would be very, very difficult. Uh, also an uphill climb. And uh, it, it's hard to, to knock out an incumbent, particularly if the economy is growing. And at the very outset, outset I said, look, if unemployment is above 8%, we're going to win. If it's below 8%, we're going to have a hard time winning. And it was a little below 8% on election day. And so we knew it was going to be close to a toss up. And at what stage during the primary campaign did you realize that you were going to win the nomination? And what was that realization like? Well, um, uh, your listeners know that we have a series of states that, that get to make their choices for the nominee. And, and, uh, and I had uh, effectively tied in the first contest that would be in Iowa. Uh, and then we went to New Hampshire where I won. And then we went to South Carolina where I lost. And South Carolina is a much bigger state than the first two in terms of number of Republican delegates to the convention. So that was a big loss. And then we went to Florida, which has a lot more delegates than the others. And, and I won in, in Florida. And at that point, it looked pretty clear to us that, that I was on the path to becoming the nominee. And we celebrated. We were excited. This is, this is happening. And then comes the agonizing reappraisal when you recognize that, that uh, the person that was your number one competitor in Florida is no longer the top competitor. There's a new guy, uh, Rick Santorum in this case, has emerged as the, the non-Romney candidate. And he's doing pretty darn well in some of the states coming up, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. And uh, so we had to check our, uh, our excitement and our celebration and, uh, and begin to uh, get ready for more difficult contests. And subsequently winning Michigan having come from behind in the polls there, and then Ohio pretty much made it clear that I was going to become the nominee. Um, the, uh, the excitement, I mean, there's some people who just, who celebrate any kind of victory and, and don't think about the next step. I tend to be the kind of person who celebrates for a very short period of time, and then I begin think, thinking about what's coming next. And the responsibility you have to the people you care about to be successful on the next step. So for me, a victory is only an indication of, okay, now that even harder things are about to happen. And I was fortunate enough to be at the 2012 Republican convention in Tampa when you accepted your party's nomination uh, to be president. In fact, I was watching in Chairman Reese Privacy's box in that vast arena mm. when you walked onto the stage to tens of thousands of cheering Republicans. What was going through your mind as you stood backstage and then walked onto that podium? Well, if my mother-in-law could only see me now, 
<laughs> yes, behind every successful man stands a surprise mother-in-law. Exactly right. <laughs> my, my parents-in-law had both passed away. My parents were gone as well. Uh, I, uh, I really was thinking about my mom and dad, to tell you the truth, and uh, how much they would have liked to have been there and seen that. Uh, my, uh, uh, my heart was full as I thought about all my family members cheering as well. It's a, uh, it's a very encouraging moment. And uh, frankly, I, I loved being able to uh, express my feelings to the people there and to see the warm response. Heck, who, who wouldn't love to be in a stadium full of people cheering for you? And it, it felt good at the same time I knew, uh, boy, I've got to make sure not to let these people down. And, and this year so far, we've had two presidential debates with one more to go. What's it like preparing for those debates? How did you go about it? And how easy is it to remember and stick to once you've, the things you've prepared once you're on that stage? Well, I had a, a very strong team. I, I chose my former chief of staff, Beth Myers. She had served with me when I was governor of Massachusetts to, uh, to lead the debate preparation effort. And, uh, and she had teams of people delving into various issue areas and preparing briefing books for me because one of the things you're most concerned about is they'll raise a question you don't have an answer for and you don't want to get up there and look foolish. And so you really need to be uh, briefed on a whole series of, of topics because, again, you know the questioner wants to you know, find you uh, uh, lacking in some way uh, so, or your opponent does at least. So that's part of what went on. And then we would have uh, sessions where I would uh, go back and forth with uh, five or six members of my staff and I would suggest a, a model answer and they'd tell me what was wrong with it and I'd try and uh, incorporate their thoughts. And then finally, when you get ready for the, the presidential debates, we would actually uh, rent a small ballroom at a hotel, set it up like a, a debate stage, and I would be debating uh, someone. Um, uh, Rob Portman, senator from Ohio, was, was my sparring partner. He was representing Barack Obama. And uh, he and I would go back and forth. We'd have a moderator ask questions. We'd go back and forth and hit each other. And of course, he has all these notes ready. He's reading from a book and just beating the heck out of me. <laughs> and it gets, it gets a little frightening when you think, oh boy, this could be tough. Um, but um, uh, that's the process. Uh, there, there aren't canned answers. You don't, I don't, you know, I didn't have a, an answer for all the possible questions. You, you do have a couple of lines people give you that you might be able to use. You, might, you, know, um, you know the attack points you're going to go after, uh, how you're going to challenge your opponent and where you think that opponent is weakest. Um, but, but for someone in the private sector, it's very hard to incorporate the advice you get time and time again from the professionals, which is never answer the question. And I used to laugh at that. When people ask me a question, I answer what they ask me. But politicians have learned not to do that because the questioner is trying to catch you. So they always pivot to something that sounds like they're answering, but they're not. And, and I found that almost impossible to do. As we, as we speak, we're 25 days from the election. What's life like at this point in the campaign for the candidates and their families? Uh, if there's no hope left, and I, I don't know how it feels in, uh, in the various races and how realistic the candidates are, but if... If they're looking at numbers that suggest that they really are not going to win, the last weeks are really painful. Uh, I had the occasion of running against uh, Ted Kennedy for Senate in Massachusetts, and, and a Mormon millionaire 
in Massachusetts is unlikely to beat Ted Kennedy in Massachusetts. And I was, I don't know, double digit points behind. It was pretty clear I wasn't going to win. And at that stage, going out and rallying people and saying, let's get together. We're going to win this thing is very, very hard. In fact, my wife, Ann, just couldn't do it. She couldn't bring herself to go out there on the stage and, 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 and do these rallies when she knew there was just no hope of actually being successful. Uh, at this stage, I think most folks, however, think they're within striking distance and something could happen to change the, uh, the course of the campaign and they might just win. Um, in my case, uh, we were very, very close. Some polls had us ahead, some did not. My internal pollster said we were ahead, we were going to win. Uh, I was cautiously optimistic, but uh, I recognized it could go either way. And how hard is it to stick to the campaign plan that you've agreed and not to be distracted by the day-to-day -day media cycle? Uh, th there's no question, but that, that uh, we would have in each day a, a theme that we wanted to communicate to the public. Uh, and we would present that, I would present that in my speeches, and the media had no interest in whatever it was that I'd prepared, my message for the day. They're instead looking for something interesting, something quirky, someone in the audience did something unusual. Uh, I responded in a way that, that I tripped up in some way. That's all the, that's really what the public is interested in. They don't want to hear what Romney's tax proposal is for companies of a certain scale. No, they want to hear about, you know, he sneezed in the microphone and, 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 uh, uh, and people had to stand back there. They're looking for those human interest things. And, uh, that can be frustrating because you have a game plan of what you want to do, uh, but it is it is not the job of the media to carry out your game plan. It's their job to try and reveal who you are, and uh, in an interesting and compelling way. and And that's just the that's just the nature of the of the process. Uh, and and I think uh, better candidates are able to find a way to hone their message and stick to it day in and day out. I wish I'd have been better at that. And I've heard political operatives say that the hardest thing about the whole campaign is to persuade their candidate at the end of the day to switch off the news and go to sleep. Was that true of you? <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I had the good fortune when I ran for governor uh, in 2002 to have an advisor, a guy named Mike Murphy, who came to me and he said, look, I'll sign up and work with you, but I have several critical rules. Number one was... I was not allowed to read the newspaper. And I laughed and said, you're kidding. He said, no, no, you can read the other stories. You can't read any stories about you or your campaign. He said, you can watch the TV news because we'll do fine on TV, but the newspapers aren't going to like you. You're a conservative. They're liberal. You can't read the stories. If you do read the stories, you're going to find yourself responding, sometimes subconsciously, responding to something some 21-year-old writer has come up with and it's going to throw us off message. And, and I, I adopted that uh, policy such that even when I was running for president, I did not read the stories about me or the campaign. Of course, I read the stories about what was going on in the world and so forth. But I just didn't, I didn't look at the day-to-day -day, uh, attacks and counterattacks. Uh, instead, I tried to keep on my own, uh, my own message. I didn't watch TV either. I didn't turn on the cable shows at the end of the day to see how they're reporting it. I, uh, I found it much, much uh, easier on my, <laughs> my heart, if you will, <laughs> to, to go out and campaign and speak to the people who were uh, supporting me and, uh, and try and get that message through to the public at large. Another thing that stays with me from the 2012 convention was just how confident the party seemed to be, including at a senior level. 
that you were in fact going to win. Was that really the case? Did your team and you personally expect to win the election? Uh, we hoped to win the election, but we are, uh, I am at least, analytical enough uh, and enough of a student of history to recognize that, that replacing an incumbent president in a growing economy is a very difficult thing to do, and uh, some would say unlikely, although I thought I had uh, at least an even chance and maybe better than even chance. Um, our pollster kept us uh, uh, seeing generally positive news, but very, very close. And we recognized that who came out to vote would determine the outcome of the election. And we hoped we could get our people out. We knew they would get their people out. So I, I have to be honest, it's always in a campaign, I think, essential to be optimistic and enthusiastic and, and confident in the future uh, of your campaign. At the same time, uh, the senior staff and I recognized, hey, this is a tough race to the very end, and it could go either way. And at what point did you realize that it wasn't going to happen? Was it later in the campaign or not until the election night itself? Not until election night did we recognize that I would lose in 2012. Um, I remember distinctly uh, looking at, at Ohio numbers in the polls, and we were winning with independent voters by a very good margin in Ohio. And, and my team said, you know, if you win independent voters in Ohio and you win your own party, Republican voters, you're going to win this thing. I mean, there's just no way you're not going to win. And I you know, heard that from the people around me. We were doing well in polls in Florida and in North Carolina, and Virginia. And uh, we looked at it and said, you know what, we can win this thing. But there was always the caveat, depending on who turns out to vote. How many minority voters will vote? How well will we do with them? How many women? How many men? How many young people? And that's all a judgment call. And on election night, we began seeing uh, reports of very long lines in uh, voting places where minority voters in Ohio would be voting, far longer lines than had existed in 2008 when President Obama was first elected. And we began to realize this could be a tough night. Uh, and as the numbers were coming in from Florida and Ohio, uh, it was pretty clear that uh, it was not going to be a successful night for me. So it was not until election night that we recognized we would not win. And how did you personally take the defeat? What was the hardest part? What did you do to get over it? <laughs> well, I've, I, you know, life is not about winning, winning, winning. There are wins and losses. And uh, and this was obviously a big loss. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and yet... Uh, I can imagine for people who define themselves by winning elections, that losing an election could be uh, devastating. Um, I define myself by my relationship with my wife, my family, my God. Um, my, uh, my life has been successful in the arena of business where I spent most of my career. And, and so when the election was over, I went back to my family and business and, and my life went on. Uh, so it was not devastating to me. I was disappointed. And I guess the, the hardest thing for me was recognizing how many people I had let down. That's the hardest part. Um, some people had, had spent hours, days, weeks on the road, knocking on doors for me, making phone calls. Others had gotten their friends to give money to my campaign. Uh, it, it, and these people counted on me to win and I didn't. And, and, uh, I think getting over that um, uh, that failure uh, was something that took some time and and occurred as those friends, volunteers and donors and so forth 
uh, gathered around me in the ensuing weeks and said, hey, you know, way to go, gave it your best, left it all in the field, uh, and let's get behind uh, another campaign for either you or someone else in the future. So it wasn't quite like John McCain said that first night he slept like a baby, waking every night, every hour, crying, and then going back to sleep again. <laughs> yeah, my guess is that's a great line from John McCain, but my guess is he knew he was going back to the Senate and he had faced a lot worse in his life than losing an election. Looking further afield, you said during your campaign that Russia was the biggest strategic foe of the United States. Do you feel vindicated now in that view? Oh, I, I certainly do. But I think um, uh, even President Obama would have agreed with me uh, had it not been a campaign uh, at the time. I mean, you know, I talked about Russia not being an enemy, uh, but being a geopolitical foe. Uh, uh, they basically were backing all of the world's worst actors uh, and, uh, and sticking it in the eye of the West and the United States on a regular basis. For some reason, Putin really does have the old mindset of, of uh, we versus them. And... Um, uh, and I and I saw pushing back against him as something that was essential for America to do, and and I take no pleasure in the fact that that uh, that that's been proved to be correct. Um, I, I I just think that it was made a political issue uh, and one which people who were close to the world situation uh, recognized at the very beginning. I was right about. In the UK, as you know, we have a new Prime Minister Theresa May and a new Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson. What advice would you give them, and indeed the next president, about dealing with the Russian challenge, especially to NATO? Uh, I actually think that that uh, the the leaders uh, in NATO uh, should get together on a more frequent basis to uh, consider what actions various countries might take, Russia and others, and to say what would we do if uh, they were to do those things. Uh, make certain commitments to one another and, and have a good sense of where one another stands and potentially even communicate that uh, uh, behind closed doors to, to Russia and to other nations and to say, look, if you do the following things, these are the things we're committed to do in response. So recognize there's a big cost to you doing these things. I think in, in the past, Russia has been able to take some pretty aggressive action uh, with relatively um, minor reaction or res response, in part because we hadn't coordinated what we'd do beforehand. Uh, we hadn't anticipated they would do certain things until they'd already been done. And, and do you have any thoughts about the UK's decision to leave the European Union in its referendum earlier this year? As a politician and successful businessman, how do you see Britain's prospects outside the European Union? Well, I, I think uh, Great Britain had uh, a, a benefit by being part of the EU, obviously trading and competing with, with other nations within the EU and, and being able to send goods and services cross-border without tariff and without barrier is a positive. Um, and I think uh, Great Britain has the capacity to be competitive with any, any nation within the EU and to be competitive globally. Um, so no longer being part of the EU, um, can be a challenge for Great Britain. Uh, it depends, of course, on the, the nature of the agreements that are worked out with the rest of the EU and with the rest of the world. Um, so it's not a, 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 something that you can conclude today exactly how it'll work out. But there's no reason why Great Britain can't be uh, competitive globally and, uh, and, and its products can be taken into other countries and therefore can reach a higher level of employment and higher wages. Um, that depends uh, on whether we're going to have a world where people are able to trade across uh, uh, borders uh, or not. 
Uh, Great Britain represents what percent of the world population? Obviously, a relatively small number. Uh, and and it, it to be highly uh, successful, it wants to be able to trade around the globe. And if no longer being a member of the EU were to prevent that, that would obviously be very, be very harmful to the British people. On the other hand, if it can trade more openly with other nations, I think it can be a, a highly effective competitor and can create more jobs. Turning back to America in this election, why do you think the Republican Party went in the direction it did this year? Well, as you know, a, a party is not, uh, uh, if you will, defined or created by a few people at the top. A, a, a party is, is defined by the millions of people who vote in the primaries and select who their nominee is going to be. And those people, uh, the, the voters of the Republican Party, uh, cho- chose a person who is on the, the populist spectrum. Uh, who who is more isolationist both in foreign policy and uh, economic policy than has been the party's tradition. And uh, I think that stems from the fact that that, that people are angry about uh, the, the lack of uh, progress on issues they care about. Uh, they watch TV and radio or listen to radio um, and, and, and hear a lot of people saying it could be better. Why can't the politicians get these things done? They're angry about the people that they've elected in the past, the establishment, if you will. And, uh, and this resentment uh, towards those who are more successful, resentment towards politicians, resentment towards the, the elite and media and so forth, uh, led uh, the voters to choose someone who was uh, uh, you know, willing to, to, uh, uh, to fly in the face of, uh, uh, of the leaders of, of the country. You were pretty outspoken about Donald Trump during the primary season, but you then kept your views to yourself until the notorious 2005 tape surfaced a week ago. What made you decide to break your silence? Well, I I began laying out a pretty full exposition uh, back in March of why it was that Donald Trump should not be our nominee. Uh, This is when the primaries were still ongoing and why he should not be president. And, And I felt very strongly about that. I laid that out in such a complete manner that I didn't feel it was necessary to keep campaigning and, and repeating the same thing day in and day out. My message was clear. I, I, I told people where I stood. If they cared about where I stood and what I thought, why uh, they, uh, they had what they needed with what I'd already said. And I didn't feel I needed to be the attack dog. That was the job of the people running against him. Uh, and I, would, uh, I would, would watch and hope people came to their senses. But then with the, the, uh, the tape of, uh, of his vulgar um, uh, and demeaning comments about women, uh, I, I felt that uh, I, I had to say something again to, to simply point out to the women of America uh, and to the men of America that we're better than that and that this does not represent um, the, the quality or character of our country. Um, from time to time, I'm sure that'll happen in the future with, with regards to other political people. Um, I had not intended to speak again until the election about Mr. Trump but these comments were so over the line uh, that I felt that the, that the interest of our uh, coming generations called for me, along, along with many other people speaking out. As you know, uh, we've been conducting focus groups in swing states around the country as part of my Ashcroft in America project. And one thing that's abundantly clear is that not just the country, but the Republican Party itself seems polarized or even at war uh, with itself. Do you see that polarization or even a civil war continuing whoever wins the White House 
and what must leaders do to fix it? Um, it's hard for me to gauge uh, what would happen uh, if, if Mr. Trump were to lose. I think it's more likely he'll lose than not. If he were to win, um, I think uh, my party would be particularly troubled um, uh, between those who are strong supporters of Mr. Trump and a smaller number at that stage who would be wanting to go in a different direction. Um, but if he were to lose, uh, uh, then I think there are going to be many, many people who still carry his banner, uh, a banner of, of, if you will, anger, resentment, uh, wanting dramatic change, um, uh, different policies on immigration and trade than we have typically adopted as a party versus those who are the traditional, more mainstream Republicans. And whether they can come back together again or not is a darn good question. Um, I, I, uh, I happen to think that for that to happen requires a person uh, of unusual skill, a Churchill, an Eisenhower, uh, a, 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 an individual who's able to step forward, a Reagan, who is able to step forward and, and bring people together. I, I don't know that we will see that person uh, in 2020 or in the months leading up to that. But absent that kind of leadership, I think it will be very difficult to, uh, uh, to put the, uh, for the Humpty Dumpty to be put back together again. And finally, I think there's an argument that what America needs is a president with a long track record of making things happening and get things done who's well known for his integrity and has a reputation for treating people with respect. Is there a chance that at some point you could be tempted back into the fray? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, uh, I just described what I think is necessary to help bring our party back together. Uh, I, I don't think people will be clamoring for me uh, for that kind of role. I had my chance. Uh, I clearly was someone who came down on the side of the anti-Trump forces. So I'm not sure those Trump supporters would be anxious to see me come in and try and pull things together. I, I, I think we have a good prospect that, uh, uh, that one of the young faces in my party that uh, perhaps got on the stage in 2016, but perhaps is still not on the stage yet could emerge as that kind of leading figure. I sure hope so. Uh, and, uh, but I'm not, uh, I'm not running for anything again. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the, uh, the streams of my life uh, uh, as currently uh, uh, being employed. And Mitt, who will be the next president of the United States? Uh, well, I think the polls would suggest right now that, that Secretary Clinton is the most likely to win. I don't think it's impossible that Donald Trump wins. I know many pundits think he can't possibly win, but I'd say there's a maybe a, I don't know, 25 percent chance that, you know, one out of four that he gets elected. Uh, and uh, uh, and so it's not over. Uh, and and so we we uh, we're going to keep on battling until the very end and hopefully having uh, the kind of leadership that the world demands at a very critical time. Mitt, thank you very much uh, for that and for sparing the time. Uh, to do this podcast with me. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.